2022, it has been a blur. I mean, I don't know how to say that. Obviously, uh, there's more days in 2022, uh, but this is our last Sunday in person. Uh, next week, Christmas, we won't be gathering on Sunday. Don't come here because uh, nobody's going to let you in. However, uh, there will be a Devo online worship and song as well, and then we'll kind of close out this Advent space, this Advent space, this season. I love that song, Even So Come, where we just are reminded that our noble heritage is waiting. It is who we are called to be, people that wait. If you're a Christian, this is your story. This is, this is part of your language to, to wait on God. And I think about this text today, Luke 4, it, it's a scene that's, that's famous You don't have to be Christian to know of this scene. It's a scene that is captured in Luke's gospel. It's a scene where we see the temptation of Jesus Christ. It's a scene that's not necessarily unique to Jesus. In fact, it's emblematic of all of humanity, where in this scene you get this expression of a war for the soul. A real enemy, there's actually three here, at work, warring for Christ's soul. And every time I think of this text and I think about the season we're in, I just feel like there's a collision. Because you don't have to be Christian to feel that tension that there's a war for your soul. That there's this exhausting nature of being human often. Where it's like, yo, like, I'm just, I want my mind to do one thing. But my body wants to do the other. It's like this segmented self where there's no harmony from the inside. And it shows up on the outside. And this week has been long for many people because some people are in this weird space of mourning someone they don't know personally, but they know from the stage, Twitch. We were in an ELT meeting and... And Tracy pulls it up. Oh, my God, Twitch is dead. And we're we're in the midst of talking about 2023, but we stop and we pray and we process. And it's just one of those things where, man, what do you do with that? Where someone takes their life, where the language that Tracy was using, they feel like all that's left is to be unalive. That there's such a disconnect between desires and direction. And it's like, what do you do with that? Holiday season is tough for many people because you think about the memories that you're making without your loved ones. A reminder of the war of the soul and and an advent, God gives us a word, wait. And in this picture of what happens with Jesus, we see Jesus living out of that word, waiting well on God. We can't suppress our spirituality. We have bodies. We have souls. And though we can't suppress our spirituality, and God has an aim for our spirituality. He has, he, has, he has built us this way. Can't suppress it, but we can exchange God's aims for our spirituality in unhealthy, destructive ways. That exchange just reveals how we were made. The rise in crystals. The rise in manifesting, and again, that wasn't a shot way back when, but it needs to be said, manifesting to tap into something spiritual beyond us. The rise in affirmations and positive thinking to have truth sung over us to help us fight. What I envision today is that we would marvel at Jesus and we would learn how to fight well for our souls, for freedom, and for life itself. Now, to do that, we're going to walk through the text by looking at a few key things. We're going to look at the sketch of the fight. We're going to look at the path to our victory. And then we're going to look at this man who is worthy, a man found worthy before we close. So that's the flow of our time, the sketch of a fight, the path to our victory, and this man 
who is found worthy. Would you read with me? And then we'll take it bit by bit. A lot here. Matt, Luke 4, one reads like this. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the Spirit said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones, this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I can give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Guys, this is like so humorous to me. Imagine somebody taking you to the top of the Eiffel Tower and saying, go fly. It's crazy. So throw yourself down. He says this. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until the opportune time. Amen. I don't know what you're saying, baby, but I feel it from the spirit. Something from the Lord. One day it'll be clarified, maybe on the other side of eternity. Nevertheless, uh, this passage is so fascinating to me. There's just so much here in terms of just details that construct this picture of what it looks like to fight well, to wage war against what wars against us, to fight well. I don't want to get lost in the details because they will be here forever. However, top five leadership books of all time, Sun Tzu's The Art of War. If you're in relationship with me and it's a relationship where I serve as some quasi-mentor or coach to you, right? I've probably given you this book. Somebody gave this book back to me, amen? But The Art of War, it's, it's glorious. It's, it talks about just these different strategies and tactics for fighting. And one of the most famous phrases or ideas that comes out of that is that you have to know your enemy. That if you want to succeed in any type of fight, you want to be in a position where you can be victorious, you have to know your enemy. This first part, this sketch of the fight, it involves identifying the threefold enemy that is against all of humanity. Now, the sketch of the fight, the threefold enemy that we see here has existed forever, not forever in the same way as God, but forever in our human existence. This threefold fight historically has been understood as this enemy, Satan, the flesh, and the world. This is some two millennia of Christian tradition and the scriptures that identified a threefold enemy, the triumvirate, the threefold enemy as the devil, the flesh, and the world. Now, as we build out the sketch of the fight, let me just go ahead and say, we're not going to spend equal time on each. Again, I want to honor time. But, but honestly, also because the first two, they're the ones that I feel get misunderstood in many ways. And the first one, because there is a sequence, if you will. The devil, he is seen as the architect of it all. Last week, Pastor John John, as he was preaching, great job again, John John. I don't even know if you're here, if you're online, but as he was preaching, uh, he, he made a statement regarding movies. 
Uh, then he looked at me, and I was like, it wasn't me, fam. That wasn't me. It was actually Ronald, who doesn't know movies. But, um, however, what was super fascinating, which is why I love our church, is like right after, if you remember the statement, if you were here, if not, just go look at it online. He was saying that it's very hard to find a movie or a trilogy where the sequel is better. And yo, like, if you just, I saw a crew of people come up to him and like, what are you talking about? Godfather 2 is better than the first God. And I just was like, man, I love our church. I love that we're in the arts. I love that we have good taste. Godfather 2 was better in Jesus' name. (laughs) Facts. However, so if you're familiar with movies, one of the greatest movies of all time, no cap, The Usual Suspects. Now, I don't say that to affirm some of the people that are in that movie who have done things. But if you remember one of the, you know, the person's character, Kaiser Sose, he's like this enigmatic figure that has convinced people he kind of exists, but he doesn't. And then one of the lies that's uttered is that the greatest trick that the devil has ever pulled is to convince people that he doesn't exist. Maybe you've heard that. And it's true. We live in a post-enlightenment world that has misunderstood the place of reason in our metaphysical reality. And so what we end up doing is if we can't touch it, taste it, or see it immediately, then we dismiss it outright. And so we apply that to Satan himself. And so the devil is this boogeyman that the uninformed, those people way back when, believe in. But us who are the keepers of information and ideas, us who by progressing in knowledge will transform the world, us, we know better. Unfortunately, again, we can't suppress our spirituality and we live in a spiritual world and there's a real enemy of the soul, Satan. Now, what's interesting is Satan or the devil is actually not a name. It's a title. And there's a ton of titles given to this material, sentient being that wages war actively against God himself, directly against creatures, humans. This material, sentient being doesn't actually have a name given, just a title. And the title describes who he is and how he operates. Devil, Diablo, slanderer, accuser. Genesis talks about this, this being as a, as a serpent. Revelation talks about this being as a dragon. John talks about this being, through Jesus' words, as a thief. Peter picks up on this and takes it a bit further and says that he's like this ravenous Roaming, lying, seeking to devour. Jesus, in John 8, some of the most exhaustive teaching that you will ever get regarding the devil, talks about him and says this about him. You are your father, the devil. First, he was talking to, to these Jews who didn't want to believe in him. You're your father, your devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Did we see that idea again, that picture? He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Other translation says he, he speaks out of his nature, that the core nature of this material sentient being that we call the devil is liar, deceiver. John Mark Comer, I'm grateful for his teaching, grateful for the host of people that have influenced me directly and indirectly, personally and impersonally. He's impersonal, but in his book, Live No Lies, it's a glorious book, recommended reading. He he gives what I believe is the greatest synthesis of the devil, the flesh, and the world working together. And particularly, he talks about the devil's strategies. Here's here's a synthesis. He says, the devil's primary strategy for leading the soul and society into ruin is deceptive ideas. That's lies. Speaking out of his nature. 
that play to disordered desires, the flesh, which are normalized in a sinful society, the world. Say that again. The devil's primary strategy for leading the soul and society in ruin is deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires which are normalized in a sinful society. At the root of all temptation is an appeal to an illusion or the appeal to believe a lie. That's what we saw here. This first enemy that we're looking at, devil, an actual being, not the figment of our imagination or the creation of the uninformed, but a material sentient enemy who has fixed his sights on the destruction of the soul and society. What we see here is lies. If you're the son of God, command. You're not really the son of God. That's a lie. To you I will give this authority and their glory, all of these kingdoms, if you will worship me, it will all be yours. Worship me because I'm worthy of it. That's a lie. All of it is here. There, there's nothing but lies, but what's fascinating and scary is this is just a recreation of what we see in Genesis chapter 3. Where, where Satan's strategy is simply to get us to disbelieve God in such a way that leads to destructive consequences. It's a lie. The way he lies orients around three questions. The lies the devil tells and desires us to believe Deal with the questions, who is God? Who are we? And how do we live? Every single lie, every single temptation will orient around those three questions. Who is God? Who are we? And how do we live? And what Satan does is he comes in and, and he starts to take truth and it's, 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 it's actually quite clever and crafty. And he doesn't necessarily remove all of the truth, just enough garden. Well, did God really say that you'll die? Now, well, the truth is, yeah, the angels will grab you if you cast yourself off the Eiffel Tower. It's not necessarily a lie, but he's removed enough of it where it's not actually the truth. Are you tracking with me? Half-truths are whole lies, period. And this is how he traffics. He traffics in deceptive ideas, which are really half-truths, entire lies that play to our hearts. Let me explain like this. And I want to I kind of move on a bit. Have you ever been in an Uber that has made you uncomfortable? Yes. It was me this week. Um, got in the Uber and, you know, you put your seatbelt on because you want the highest rating possible. And sometimes you put your seatbelt on because you don't trust the driver. For me, I didn't trust this driver. Right. So he, I said his gender, uh, he stopped in the middle of the road and then he made a U-turn. And I was like, I'm going to die. And so I just, I just put that on as quick as as possible, and we were going from Wynwood to my house, which is in Little Haiti. Not a long drive at all. I take that drive often. I ride my bike there. So I have a particular way I think someone should navigate from Wynwood to my house. Does that make sense? Y'all track with me? He didn't go that way. Not only did he not go that way, the way he drive or drove was dangerous. And so I got to the end, and he was like, I'm, we're singing in Spanish. I don't know Spanish that well, but I know the cuss words. And they were coming out. And so I got to the end, zero stars, for sure. And then I got out my Uber. Now, it was not a pleasant trip for a couple of reasons. One, because of the driver, but two, because of the route that he took. It wasn't the route that I was accustomed to. The route I was accustomed to would have got us there quicker. Definitely would have got us there safer. <laughs> 
and I would have been able to go about my business. Here's what I know about all of us. All of us have what psychologists would call our mental maps. They are like unconscious ways of which we navigate the world, period. So if you've ever jumped in a car going to your destination, you don't always have to go to Apple Maps, which is superior to Google Maps. You just kind of know how to get there, (laughs) right? You just kind of know. It's just kind of like in you. Even sometimes where you're going to like the same route, but you're going for a different purpose, and sometimes you end up missing the turn that you're really supposed to take because you kind of have a grit, a map of navigating the world that you live in. Well, just as there are maps for, Apple Maps are better, just as there's maps for navigating like our geographical space, what psychologists would say, and they're right, is there's maps that we have for navigating life. Let me just say this. Psychology, philosophy, and theology all used to be under the same house, which made sense. They were housed under the idea of spirituality, And what happened is we separated them and people in each field talk about each other when they really need each other to make much of God and to understand the world that we live in and to understand ourselves. So let me go ahead and say that in case there's confusion. But there's maps that we have for life. There's these unconscious cognitive processes that we all have that cause us to navigate life in a particular way. And, but, but as it relates to maps for life, the mental maps for life are ideas or assumptions about life that cause us to navigate towards what we will ultimately believe is good. And we all have them. We all have ideas of what is going to produce utmost good for us. Every single one of us have them. We attach them to jobs. If you're a millennial, you were told, go to college, go get that $150,000 debt, and then you're going to be able to pay off. And it's like, wait, that was a lie. Satan. Right? But, but that, was the, that was the idea. If you just work hard and you get this degree, it's going to set. And then, we all have them. What Satan is good at is creating these distorted ideas that cause us not to navigate life the way God intends, not to navigate life towards good, but to navigate life towards our ruin. One author said it this way, and I thought it was profound. He said, it's not so much that we believe believe lies, it's that we live them. In other words, These ideas, which are lies, end up becoming the very way we navigate life and live. He said it this way. The counterfeit reality that's created from these mental maps that are not true, that we have welcomed into our soul, will not grow as it collects around other illusions and builds itself into a foundation of a life of falsity. It is not so much that we tell lies as that we live them. Worse still, we become the lie. You know that to be true in your own personal history and in the history of the friends that you have and the stories that you've heard. Where people grow up hearing one thing, you're never going to amount to anything. And over time, they live like that's true. You're not worthy of love. The only way somebody's going to love you sincerely is if you give them your body first instead of giving them your soul and marriage. We know what happens. You are what you produce. The only way you're going to have significance in life is if you work hard, make a living, and then you have zeros in your bank account, and then you keep working because you are what you produce. So if you stop producing, you stop existing. We know that. But it's not random. It's a plan. That's what we have to see. It's a real enemy using 
real, tangible tactics to lead our soul into ruin. Flesh. The flesh is a word that is often weirdly used in Christian spaces. I remember I was in one uh, Sunday service when I was in college and the pastor was like, and I was like, I don't know. I was like, what, what are you, why are you tapping your arm? He was preaching. He was like, it's like, you got to resist. I got to resist my arm. I don't understand. <laughs> Do you remember that, Diamond? So weird. I was like, pastor, please stop. Just tell me. Flesh. Awesome. You should have started that way. But we use it weirdly in Christian spaces. The flesh, the best way to describe it is like ball. Okay? <laughs> ball. That doesn't make any sense. Bear with me. Ball could be used in three different ways. As a noun, it's what you dribble until you shoot into a basket, right? Adjective, it's describing a grand experience. I had a ball. Technically still a noun, adjective-ish, amen. Verb, I feel that you're disrespecting me, so I need to ball on you. Flex, yes? Multiple uses for the same word. Similarly with flesh, balling. Similarly with, with flesh, there's flesh which deals with all of humanity. That's, that's one way the scriptures talk about the flesh. It's all humans. The second way it talks about the flesh is just the material body that we have. But there's a third way that it talks about the flesh. And the third way that it talks about the flesh is the enemy that we're talking about. This is Galatians chapter 5. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other. And then it goes on and lists the works of the flesh. In, in other words, the third enemy as it relates to the flesh they're, they're, they're the desires that are an active resistance to God's design, particularly sensual desires. That's the flesh. But the thing is, because the flesh has been corrupted by sin, disobedience, as a result of disbelieving God, it's not just active desires that are typically sensual. It's actually the redefining of desires as well. And when I say the redefining of desires, it's treating bad desires as if they're good and good desires as if they're bad. All of that could be housed under our understanding of the flesh, which is an active enemy against us. And it is in us, which is why we war against ourselves. I love key lime pie for Fireman Derrick's. Fireman Derrick's Bakery is God's gift to Miami. And here's what I would do. I would be like, hey, babe, do you want some, you know, some flan? Because she can't, you know, she got, she's gluten-free, so she can't have certain things. And so I'd be like, hey, let's get it from Fireman Derrick's. And what I would do is I would trick myself into saying, I'm getting flan for my wife so I could get key lime pie. Does that make sense? Not a bad desire, but it's the way the desire controls me may not be the best. And it may cause me to do things like using other people to fulfill my desires. That make sense? That's the enemy that we're after. Augustine said it this way. He said, I was held back and I was held back not by fetters put on me by someone else but by the iron bondage of my own will. From a perverse will came lust and slavery to lust became a habit and the habit being constantly yielded to became a necessity. These were the links in my chain and they held me fast in hard slavery. Desires that we don't rule will ultimately rule us every single time. And we can't project that on anybody else. We have to look inside and say, there's a real enemy at work operating in the members of my being, the flesh. 
we have to recognize our strongest desires are not always our deepest desires. Desires are like emotions. They're, they're kind of related, right? And if, you, if you're honest, if you're emotionally healthy, so you, you know where your emotions come from, you know what you're feeling in a moment, and you're able to apply them in a right way, that's emotional health. If you're emotionally healthy, you know that sometimes you just feel certain things and you can't stop yourself from feeling it. It's almost like an instinctive reaction. And while it's true, you may not be able to stop outright your emotions. And while it's stop being angry. And while it's true, you may not be able to stop outright some desires and stop lusting after that. You do have a say. You may not be able to stop it, but you do have a say. You could say that I'm angry, but I'm going to apply it in a way that's healthy and true. You could say there's this desire sensually for another human being, but I'm going to submit that to God instead of act on it in my life. The flesh. Last enemy of the world, then we're going to marvel at Jesus and close. The world, again, kind of like ball with flesh, has three understandings to it. You have the world, the cosmos, creation, right, just looking outside and the beauty of the world. There's mountains, there's oceans, there's snow, just not here. The beauty of creation, the world, you have humanity, people, for God so loved the world, right? One of the most quoted scriptures of all time. And then you have this other part that's the enemy. It's what 1 John says is the thing we should not love. Don't love the world for all that's in the world is the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it is from the world. Lust of the flesh. Genesis 3, 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. It was good to deal with her body. Luke 4, 3. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Lust of the flesh. Genesis 3, 6, and she saw that it was a delight to the eyes. Luke 4, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, their glory, their, their splendor, lust of the eyes. Genesis 3, 6, she saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Luke 4, he took him on the top of Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, said, throw yourself down. In other words, make a spectacle of yourself, Jesus. This is what Jesus' family wanted him to do as well. Yo, you're out there doing miracles. Why are you going the back way? Everybody should see you. There should be fanfare. Become a celebrity icon. Go be an influencer, Jesus. Pride of life. That's the world. The thing about the world is the world has a way of normalizing things that are contrary to God. Normalizing happens by removing stigma, redefining good, and creating confusion around guilt and shame. Shame could be a prison. Because what it does is it starts to tell us lies about ourselves and who we are. The guilt, guilt is actually good. You know people who, who don't feel guilty when they do wrong? Do you know what we call them? Sociopaths. We're like, oh, you, you went on a killing spree and you feel nothing. That's not good. There's a gift to guilt because guilt shows us, wait a second, let me pause and let me inspect. Something may not be right here. And then let me move in a way that pursues that which is true and good to actually be moved towards forgiveness and freedom. 
But you start to redefine guilt. Man, I don't feel guilty about that anymore. That's not a good thing. Often. Unless it's the Lord bringing the freedom and saying, hey, you shouldn't be under the weight of this guilt. Because you're free, no condemnation. Jesus doesn't say to retreat from the world. Rather, he prays for protection in the world so that we see the world around us doesn't get It doesn't get the right, and it doesn't have the right to make demands of the world inside us, the state of our soul. The world around us does not get to dictate to us what it means to be human. God does. And the world around us does not have a claim on my Savior or my soul. So I'm in it, but I'm not of it. I exist and I navigate, but I refuse to be conformed. And I refuse to allow the world to have the final say. Last thing, what's incentivized will eventually be normalized. What's incentivized will eventually be normalized. If I could attach a dollar to it, it's going to be normal eventually. Welcome to our world. Welcome to Miami that magnifies these realities. Where the things that are being normalized for us, and I'm not... I don't want to get in any culture war conversations. We could talk about some of that. But the things that are being normalized in our city itself wage war against us. Some of us are so exhausted because greed is normal here. Miami is fraud capital of the United States of America. Number one, no no joke. And we have to dig beneath that. Well, why? Why is fraud so normal here? Because our society, Miami itself says, hustle as much as you can because you have to survive. So by any means necessary, it's okay. This is our city. And we feel that tension. So we cut corners and we take shortcuts. And it doesn't work. What's incentivized will eventually be normalized, but let's marvel at our Savior in closing. He gives us the path to victory, and in it we see a man worth marveling at. He is worthy. If Satan's strategy, his primary strategy, is deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society, then God's primary strategy is this, the strategy for leading the soul and society into freedom is living into the truth that awakens and reorders desires that is cultivated in a spirit-filled community and strengthened by ongoing practices of grace. That's a mouthful. It's living into the truth empowered by the spirit with others. That's the strategy. And we see it here. We see Jesus, it is written, it is written, it is written. But here's the the thing that we have to see. That's the moment, right? But what our strategy isn't just taking what Jesus does in this moment and then doing it in our lives. If your parents were raised in the Great Depression, you know what I know is true about you? You have a unique economic agility, You have this unique creativity where you can make something out of nothing. We see it in in communities of poverty. How do you get a five-course meal out of spam and syrup? Teach me your ways. Right? Because what you've you've done is you've, you've had to navigate difficulty, so you've come up with a strategy, and you can employ it. You give me spam and syrup, we're not eating. You will suffer and starve. So in the hands of one person, this is transformative and life-giving. In the hands of another, death, destruction. Does it make sense? In the same way, if we just take these, oh, yeah, it is written. Every time I'm just going to combat Satan with ideas of truth. That's the moment. This moment is Lamentations 3. Where the, 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 the one writing is consumed with anxiety, despair, and suffering. And then he says, but I cast my mind. 
I call to my mind hope because I'm casting my mind to the throne of heaven. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where I'm taking thoughts captive. That is this moment. But there's an entire work beyond the moment. Beyond the moment, the work beyond the moment is Psalm 119. I've hidden your word in my heart so I may not sin against you. Beyond the moment is Psalm 1. Blesses the man who doesn't sit with the scoffers. That's community. But rather, he meditates on the word of God. He's ruminated on it and he is planted like a tree behind still. Does that make sense? That's the work behind the work. And so you can't take the strategy that we see here without taking the lifestyle that Jesus is exhibiting which is living into truth and the spirit, empowered by the spirit of God. So we talked about, and then the entire book of the gospel is spirit-filled living. So we live into truth by the spirit of God invading us, which is a byproduct of confession. Confession one time to say, God, I need you, and ongoing confession Awaken in me the power of your presence. There's presence all over here. I used to read this and I used to be like, man, Jesus, 40 days, no food. That was at his weakest. And then you realize that's not the approach the scriptures are paid in here. This is not Jesus at his weakest. This is Jesus at his strongest. 40 days just feasting on God. Just him and God in the wilderness. And Satan comes and he's like, mm-hmm, I've been with my father. Let's go. It's different. The opportune time that we see at the end is when Jesus hasn't been fasting on the presence of God. The opportune time for us is the same. Then when we're disconnected from truth and we're disconnected from the spirit and we're disconnected from the community, that is when the deceptive lies and these disordered desires, they rage all the more. So the strategy is this. It's this. The strategy are ongoing practices that God has gifted us with. Confession, fasting, praying, scripture reading, community, worship, generosity. The list goes on and on. Jesus in this moment was not just fighting against a war for his soul. He was fighting in a war for our souls. That the sinlessness of Christ is beautiful. No wasted thoughts, no wicked thoughts, never having to say, I'm sorry, but extending forgiveness. It's beautiful. No blemish. All of the scriptures ask this question of worthiness. Who is perfect? Who is worthy of worship? Who's a champion? All the scriptures beg that question. You get to Revelation at the end. And there's weeping and there's sorrow. And and he's like, I'm looking around and is there anyone worthy? So there's just one. And when there was no one found, there's sorrow that just fills his his heart. The angel comes and says, hey, there's a guy. There's one who is worthy. The lamb who was slain without blemish. He was worthy. And I look here, man, and I just, I just want us to just sit with the worthiness of Jesus and the beauty of that, of what he endured for us, his resistance for our sake. There's somebody on the other side of your resistance that is waiting. Attachment theory is real. And what happens to children of divorce and how they try to make connections later on in life and they find difficulty in doing that. There is somebody waiting on the other side of your resistance. And I see this in Jesus, that he resisted for us. For us. No arm twisting for us. Jesus said no to sin for us. Guys, Let that just sit in us, man. He said no to the desires that we easily say yes to. 
man, it crushes me. I laugh at the things that nailed Jesus to a cross. I'm ashamed. The way he resisted the things I easily give into, whether it's joking or whether it's watching or whether it's talking. And he just said, no, yet he lived a full life showing us that there's a better way than succumbing to the deceptive ideas and the disordered desires that are in me, that everything around me says it's okay. The world right now, the system and the structures, not the people, is this ongoing assault that says, listen to your inner voice. It is the most trusted guide. And it is not. It is not. My inner voice tells me the truth sometimes and it lies to me often. Because my inner voice moves in a way that is going to primarily please me no matter who is in my way. If they are an obstacle, I will overcome them or use them. This is me. This is all of us. This is the base of humanity without Jesus. And Jesus resisted all of that. That's why the writers say to us that you haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood. You haven't done what Jesus has done. Where he resisted every single day. Think about having the power to turn these stones to bread. Fam, if I had the power to turn stones to bread, my God, to snap my fingers and solve all my problems in an instant? What? Are you And Jesus, the amount of restraint to live for 33 years and not do that, to live for 33 years and allow people to just assault his identity, to tell him things about himself that are not true, that he knows not to be true, and to not extinguish them. The amount of restraint in Christ's arms. And he did all of that for you. For you. He didn't need to do it for himself as if he needed to know that he was perfect, true, and good. He invaded for us. And took on the struggle for us. And that just hit me differently this morning. Because I'm like, man, the amount of endurance that I have It's easy to endure for people I like. And even that is difficult. Yet the entire story of the gospel says that there's this supernatural endurance in God for us while we are enemies. While we are actively giving into the lies, living into them and our disordered desires, Jesus comes in and says, but I'm going to die for you. All of that was extra. June 6, 1944 is affectionately known as D-Day. If you're familiar with World War II, it's the war that we thought would end all wars, but it doesn't seem like that is true. But D-Day is when the U.S. and the Alliance landed on Normandy. And is what people, historians, have accurately said was the decisive day in the war. It was effectually over when they landed on Normandy's shores. That's June 6, 1944. May 8th, 1945, is when World War II officially ended. It's 366 days between this decisive action to its final end. There's a lot of skirmishes in those 366 days. It was a battle. Germany knew it lost. History says that's when we see the most killings in concentration camps. You were lost. The way we read the scriptures is that what happened on the cross was decisive. Jesus, as Colossians says, defeated the three enemies of the soul. Death, the flesh, and the world. 
sin and Satan defeated publicly. Decisive, the battle is won. But we live in a real-time battle now. And Advent reminds us that there is a day coming. There's a day coming. D-Day, victory. But there's a day coming of finality. And what the writers of the scriptures invite us to do is to live and to fight in view of that day. In other words, to fight from the place of victory. To live from the place of victory. As the team comes up and we get ready to take communion together, which has been a long time since we've been able to take communion, that is what we are reminded of. Communion is a reminder of that truth. The battle is won. And the in-between is a beast. It's guerrilla warfare. It's Satan grasping for straws, trying to take as many people with him to an eternity away from God. But the victory is secure. And so as the elements get passed, don't take them without us. We're going to take them together up here. And it's going to be a time to remember victory if you're a Christian. And whatever bondage, whatever idea that you know is deceptive, you take that to the cross and you do what Paul says is beautiful death. You crucify it. You crucify it. You say, God, here's this bondage. Kill it. God, here's this idea. I know it's deceptive. It's working in me. Kill it. And it doesn't mean that it's going to go away immediately. It may not even change in the here and now. However, there will be a day when you're free. And we do our best to live in light of that day. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing.